are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I don't know if you can tell, but I am not at my home uh, on the West Coast of the United States, but I am still in the West Coast. I'm in California, and uh, here I am. And Matt, come on in. Matt, I'm doing a YouTube Live. You want to just say hi to everybody? Sure, I'd love to. Matt has been the uh, the host pastor. Just say hi to everybody, Matt. Come on, get your face yep. in on the screen. How you doing, guys? We're serving this week together Love at it. Forest Home. We are serving That's together. Right. That's Serve right. Right there. And this guy is amazing communicator. It's been a great week being with Fantastic. him. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. So, Matt, every week I do a live YouTube Q&A, Thursdays at noon. Awesome. And so here, I'm just trying to do it. You're welcome to hang around if you want. Maybe you could answer some of the questions. Ooh, I love it. Anyway, I've been on the road so much this year that it's been kind of cool that I've been able to do them from a lot of different places I've been. Brazil, Africa, uh, Germany, here. Last week I did it from a parking lot in the South Bay because I had to drive my mom and my sister somewhere. That's so, awesome. Anyway, anyway. thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you. Blessings to you. All right, so... Here we are for today's Q&A, and uh, we always begin with a lead question. And here's our lead question for today. Can we pray for God to forgive others? And the question comes from Alex by email. And here's the question from Alex. Uh, Hi, Pastor Guzik. One thing I wanted you to know, and you could answer this in your Q&A video if you want. Can you pray to God to forgive someone else? Like when Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Thanks for your time. Alex, thank you for your question. I think it's a good question. It's a valid question. Friends, look, uh, I'm here at a Christian camp, Forest Home, which is a camp that I've been doing family camp at for the last seven years, even though we took a year off for the pandemic, of course, in 2020. Uh, But for the last seven years, I've been coming up for a week and doing family camp. And we're reliant on their Wi-Fi system, which isn't bulletproof. I think it's good, we've done it before, uh, and it's good, and and I hope you hang with me, even if we have a few ins and outs. We're gonna do the very best we can with it, Uh, but there is zero cell signal up here. I don't get a single signal from a cellular tower where we are in the San Bernardino Mountains, near a community called Forest Falls. Uh, But it is a wonderful week here, and let me get back to the question that we're asking here. Um, The question is, can we pray for God to forgive others? Now read it again uh, for those who missed it, perhaps. Uh, here we go. Um, uh, hi, from Alex via email. Hi, Pastor Guzik. One thing I wanted to know, and could you answer this in your Q&A video if you want. Can you pray for God to forgive someone else? Like when Jesus said, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. For, uh, thanks for your time. Alex, thank you for your question. <clears throat> and I think... Really, what you're asking for is not can we do it, but can we do it with any hope that God would answer it? Is there any kind of encouragement from God and his word uh, that this would be answered from the Lord? And I I wanna, I need to give some time answering this question because Alex, the the answer is yes, but it needs to be understood in a context. Uh, Let's kind of work through this context. First, I wanna refer back to the verse that you pointed to. It's in Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 33, where we read, 
And when they had come to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Now, there's a few principles at work here. Number one, when Jesus prayed that God the Father would forgive the sins of those nailing him to the cross, it was consistent with his teaching that we're supposed to love our enemies and those who persecute us. You remember those passages from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, just skipping a verse. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So in that sense, it's a valid thing for us to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, and even for those who don't persecute us, those whom we love, we can pray for and ask that God would uh, work in their lives, that God would bless them, that God would bring forgiveness to their life. <clears throat> but here's what I want you to understand, Alex. Forgiveness is part of a multifaceted work that God does in those who believe. You see, the, the, the question that Alec asked was pretty much narrowed on forgiveness. Like, should we pray that God would forgive the sins of other people? Would a that do any good? Listen, because salvation, including the forgiveness of sin, happens at God's initiation, we can pray for God to work that way in the lives of others. Friends, uh, God works in people to draw them to himself. Um, we love him because he first loved us. It's the goodness, it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Nobody apart from God just one day decides that they're gonna turn to the Lord. It's evidence that God has been working in their life and there's nothing wrong for us to pray for God to do such a work. You see, in the big picture, the forgiveness of sin as part of the new covenant, it's not an isolated work. In other words, it's connected with election. It's connected with repentance. It's connected with regeneration. We call that being born again. It's connected with being declared righteous by God. It's connected with being given the gift of the Holy Spirit and many more aspects. So truly to pray, Lord, forgive their sin, is to pray, Lord, bring salvation to them in the fullest sense. And that's a prayer that we can always pray. Essentially what you're asking, Alex, is, and I don't know if you realize that you're asking this question, but you're asking, can we ask God to work in people to bring them to salvation? But what we don't find is God forgiving sins in just an isolated sense. In other words, he forgives somebody's sin, but he doesn't adopt him into his family. He forgives somebody's sin, but he doesn't regenerate them by the power of the Holy Spirit. He forgives somebody's sin, but he doesn't fill them with the Holy Spirit. No, all of this is part of God's great work of salvation, especially as it's evidenced in the new covenant. You know, we have a very similar prayer that someone prayed to what Jesus prayed. It's the prayer of Stephen in Acts 
chapter 7, verse 59 and 60. Here's what Stephen prayed. It says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's very interesting. You say, well, was that prayer of any use? Was it of any good? Uh, Stephen says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He's, he's essentially praying for the salvation of his persecutors. Well, let me tell you, there was one notable man among the persecutors of Stephen. And that notable man among the persecutors of Stephen was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who later on we know in the New Testament as Paul the Apostle. There, there was at least one man, maybe more, among that crowd that was stoning Stephen to death that God brought salvation in the fullest sense. But please understand, and Alex, again, this is the point I'm trying to just sort of belabor a little bit. Forgiveness is not given in isolation. It's given in conjunction, in connection with God's full work of salvation in a person's life. So when we're praying that God would forgive the sins of other people, we're really praying that he would save them. And that's always a good prayer to pray. All right, in just a moment, I'm gonna get on to our questions that are coming in the live chat. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is David Guzik. If we've never been introduced before, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful. Very encouraging being up here at this camp where uh, I've had uh, some people who've been in pastoral ministry for many years, and they tell me that they find that commentary helpful. By the way, you can find that commentary at EnduringWord.com. And then I met some young men, a couple of young men in their 20s, and they said, David, we saw you last year up at the camp, and uh, you mentioned your commentary. We've been using it ever since. One young man told me, he said every day he reads a chapter in his Bible, and then he reads the Enduring Word commentary on that chapter. And he goes, it's just opened up the scriptures to him in a wonderful way. Now, friends, I, the, I, mine is one of several Bible resources. I'm not trying to say that it's, it's the only thing or anybody should want or need, but it's available. Best of all, it's free. So you can just give some attention to that uh, if you're so moved. Uh, the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, and we have that uh, link in the live chat there. Uh, I also want to say a very special thing. Thank you to those of you who prayed last week for my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law Gunnar, who's in Sweden, and uh, we're going to be seeing her in a couple of weeks. My mother-in-law in Sweden uh, had a fall and was in the hospital for several days and ended up being released to home much sooner than anybody thought that she would be released to home. Uh, they thought that she'd be in the hospital for a while, and then they would, uh, on top of that, she'd have to go to some kind of recovery home or uh, something like that. But she was released to home much sooner. And Nils and Gunnel, I don't know if you're watching right now, but if you are, keep praying for uh, my dear mother-in-law, Gunnel Bergstrom. And uh, God bless you, Nils and Gunnel. We're looking forward to seeing you in just a few weeks. Okay, let's get to the questions here in the side chat sent to us by our moderator. Just so you know how these things work, you guys write your questions in on the side chat. And we, uh, our moderator goes through and forwards them to me. And, and look, not every question gets forwarded to me. 
there's a selection process. I'm just being very upfront with you. There's a selection process that our moderator uses. And, and I've given my moderator strict instruction. Don't, don't do it on, oh, this question's too hard. We shouldn't send it. No, that's not it at all. What we're looking for is questions that might, number one, connect to our lead topic. That's a first priority. Secondly, we're looking for questions uh, that might have a broad appeal to many people viewing or listening to this. And third, we're looking for questions that are coherent. Folks, look, let me just be honest. Sometimes you present a question and it's hard to figure out what exactly you mean by it. And so uh, for those reasons, we, uh, we, we do that. Okay, let's get to the questions here. Um, Adonis asks this. Uh, according to the Old Testament, which prophets were murdered by Israelites? Uh, Adonis, I don't think that the Old Testament records the murder of many prophets. Uh, isn't there a prophet in Judges that was murdered? Uh, isn't there later on one in, in First Kings, uh, one that was murdered? Uh, but they're not prominent. We, we don't have a record of the murder of an Isaiah, of a Jeremiah, of an Ezekiel, of a Daniel in the scriptures. We don't have record of that in the Old Testament. Now, there's a few prophets who were murdered, and this is mentioned to us in the New Testament. Zacharias, Jesus mentions him being um, uh, murdered. And then in Hebrews, it makes reference to a prophet being sawn in two, and rabbinic tradition uh, connects that to Isaiah. But Adonis, uh, there really aren't very many uh, and no really prominent prophets that I can think of that were murdered in the Old Testament. And look, maybe I'm just, you know, not thinking of it. Maybe there's something obvious. This is the great thing about a show like this. If you got a better answer for it than I, then throw it up there in the side chat. But um, I, I can't think of it right off the top of my head. Thank you for your question there, Adonis. Uh, before I go into the next question, let me just say, doing this live Q&A from the road, we've already had one interruption in our Wi-Fi, and so we went blank for a minute, maybe two. Uh, if that happens, all I could ask is, hang on for a couple of minutes, maybe it'll come back, it came back before, um, but we're, we're just not in a situation where we have great Wi-Fi. It's good, and I'm happy for what we have. But it's not a great Wi-Fi connection for what we have. So I don't know if you can tell. Uh, my voice is a little raspy. Got like an allergy or something. And I've been doing a lot of preaching and teaching the last several days. So let me go to the next question. Leslie asks, hi, David. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says that the father has to draw someone to come to Jesus, meaning the initiative comes from the father. Could you advise how to pray or share our faith in light of this verse? Well, Leslie, that's a great question. I, I think that this can inform our prayers a few ways. We just simply ask God, God, draw that person. Now, you, you, well, what if it's not God's will to draw? Look, you leave that up to God. Say, Lord, I want that person to be saved. I want that person to come to faith. But whether or not th that is in the counsel of your will known from all eternity, God, that's your business. It's not my business. It's my business to pray, as Paul said later on in Timothy, to pray for all men. Everybody should have somebody praying for them to be saved. And so, uh, yes, very simply, very straightforward, we pray, Lord, would you please draw that person? 
I'll tell you, Leslie, another way that I use this principle in prayer, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, talks about those who are perishing, perishing because the God of this age has veiled them from understanding. And so I will often pray, um, Lord, take away that veil. Take away the veil that prevents that person from seeing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a valid prayer to pray, to be quite honest there. Um, So we can pray, God, draw them. We can pray, God, take away the veil. God, um, by your kindness, lead them to repentance. Leslie, I'll never forget something that I think it was E.M. Bounds who said this. Uh, He was a man who was a great writer about prayer, and I, I would assume he was a great prayer prayer because he he wrote very eloquent about prayer. Ian Bounds said this, that um, it's more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. And he was referring to the work of evangelism. So in the work of evangelism, prayer is often neglected. And it's more important to talk to God about men. In other words, to pray for them. God, draw them. God, take away the veil. God, work in them by your spirit. God, convict them by your Holy Spirit as you said you would. Um, It's more important to pray those prayers than it is even to speak to that person about God, about Jesus Christ. Now, we're in the blessed position where we don't have to choose between the two. We can do both. But if you had to choose between one or the other, it could rightly be said that it's more important to talk to men about God than it is to talk about God about men. Right now I'm sitting in this room and I see something on the wall over there that would have made a great background for me to stand in. It's kind of not much to look at behind me, so sorry about that. Look, I'm, I'm not the best designer, not the best production guy, but uh, hopefully the content is helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question. Comes from... Adonis, again, asks, should Christians keep the Old Testament holy days? Why should 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19, Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 24, and Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 21, not be taken as proof that Christians must keep the feasts today? Okay, well, the, the verses that Adonis quotes, first of all, in 1 Corinthians, is talking about keeping the Passover. But please notice there, <coughs> here, Paul is very plainly seeing that Christ is the new Passover. He's not recommending keeping the old Passover, but he's using Passover as an analogy for how we should follow Christ. Uh, then in Zechariah, it talks about People. Well, I'll just give you a quick answer in, from Zechariah, Ezekiel, in the two passages in Ezekiel, Adonis. I, I don't think that those uh, require that believers today observe the feasts of Israel. I believe that describes what will happen in the millennial age that the nations will be required to keep the feasts of Israel. And because, because of my understanding of eschatology, listen, Christians differ on this. There's different perspectives on how things work out with the end times and the coming of the kingdom of God. But in my understanding of eschatology, I would simply say that these are things that belong to the millennial age to come, and we aren't in that millennial age to come, and so they don't belong to us in this present age. 
Instead, what Paul talked about in Colossians belongs to the present age. Let no man judge you in the observance of a feast or a new moon or Sabbath or special days because we have freedom in Christ. But Adonis, I would want to be very clear about this with you or with anybody else. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have perfect freedom to observe these feasts. If you want to observe them, you have freedom in Jesus Christ to observe them. Praise the Lord for that. So don't feel that there should be any restriction on you. It's just that those were part of what is some kind of called the Mosaic economy, the, the old covenant. And we live now under a new covenant and a better covenant that does not requ- uh, include the required observance of those things. Sorry, you're probably going to frequently see me taking uh, not only drinks of water, but inserting cough drops. The voice is a little rough here today. Okay, next question comes from Now I Know, who asks, Hello, sir. Would there still have been concepts like Christianity, the Trinity, etc., if Adam and Eve had never sinned, slash, without the fall? Well, now I know you're asking a pretty speculative question, which I'm not hesitant to answer. Thank you for your question. I'm happy to address it. Uh, uh, but it is pretty speculative, if I could give that thing. So, um, you know, these what-if questions. I don't mind answering them, but we just realize that we're just kind of thinking here. We're just kind of working as we can. Well, I, I would say this. There definitely would have been the concept of the Trinity, because that's key to the nature of God in who he is. And that would be known, that would be revealed to Adam and Eve and, and their descendants, <clears throat> assuming that sin never came into the human race. So the Trinity, yes. I would say Christianity, no. Because a key component to the Christian faith is dealing with the sin problem. And you are supposing a world, you're supposing a universe that doesn't have a sin problem. So uh, Christianity as we know it wouldn't exist in a world that had never fallen. But uh, now I know I do want to give you an idea that I I constantly come back to again and again. Uh, Some of our uh, viewers or listeners will be familiar because I like to talk about this. But we, we need to remember that, that God's strategy was to allow the fall to happen. Uh, it's not as if God wanted or planned it to all go great and then Adam and Eve messed it up. No, not that at all. Instead, um, God wanted to bring forth something greater than innocent man, men and women who had never sinned. God wanted to bring forth something greater and that's redeemed men and women. And I can say to you with great confidence, biblically speaking, the place, the level, the status of redeemed men and women is higher in God's plan and God's economy, if you want to say that, than the place of innocent men and women. A a, a handy phrase to remember this by is, we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. So that's, um, that's how I would understand that. 
Thank you for that question there. Now I know. Next question um, had to, comes from Margaret, who asks, what was the reason why Jews were to have no dealings with the Samaritans? Well, Margaret, great question. Let me tell you why the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, because, okay, a superficial answer would be, it was racism. They, they didn't like the Samaritans racially, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews racially. And so it was kind of like this mutual dislike or hatred. But that's a very superficial answer. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as people who corrupted the true religion. And it's very characteristic of people who are zealous to keep the true faith is that they regard those who corrupt the true faith to be even more dangerous than people who don't believe in the true faith. You could see how it would work in the mind of a first century Jew that they would consider the Samaritans even more dangerous than just straight up Gentiles. Because the Gentiles denied the validity of the God of Israel altogether, but the Samaritans corrupted the idea of the God of Israel. They, they introduced strange ideas and strange idolatrous things into the whole equation. Therefore, uh, that was the great reason why they didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans came from the people who were left over after the conquest of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Remember at some time in Israel's history, <clears throat> after the reign of Solomon, the son of David, the 12 tribes of Israel divided into two kingdoms. Uh, the 10 tribes of the north were called the kingdom of Israel, and the two tribes of the south were called the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel was much more corrupt than the kingdom of Judah. And it was conquered by the Assyrians uh, more than 130 years before the fall of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. Well, the Assyrians brought in people. They, they depopulated the kingdom of Israel. Then they brought in people from other areas of the Assyrian empire. And the mixture of the few remaining extremely poor Jewish people who were left behind and these imports from other parts around the Assyrian empire this was the basis of um, this was the basis of the Samaritans as they developed. They were named after the city of Samaria, which was the capital city of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Thank you for that question, Margaret. Let me go into the next question here from Jesse, who asks, Pastor David, when you ask God for forgiveness and He comes into our life, I know we can't live a perfect life, so when we sin in our life. Are we supposed to ask God for forgiveness every day? Well, Jesse, God bless you for your question. I think the best wisdom for your question, Jesse, comes from a passage, if I can turn to it here, uh, 1 John chapter uh, 1. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 John chapter 1. Let's take a look starting there. Okay, uh, 1 John chapter uh, 1, beginning here at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, by the way, 
First John's written to believers. It's written to the community of faith. Verse 8, 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I think it's very powerful. It happened out like this before. But we're back on. Wonderful for that. Okay, so we're answering Jesse's question, who wants to know that we know that we're forgiven when we come to Christ, and we know we can't live perfectly, so are we supposed to ask God for forgiveness every day? Look, Jesse, the basic answer is yes. As the verse that I just read to you indicates, that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Jesse, you, you might be saying, but listen, the, uh, there, there might be a thousand uh, times a day that I sin against God in some way, especially if we're defining sin as all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How can I not sin against God a hundred times a day? I, I can't confess a hundred sins a day. But listen, Jesse, the real secret to this is just doing this, is having that attitude where we say that we will, um, we will allow the Holy Spirit to bring to our mind sin that has to be dealt with. Uh, I think this is a big question. Allowing the Holy Spirit to simply bring this to our mind. And uh, I think this is what God wants us to do. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. Now look, Jesse, I think it's a good and a valid thing to pray every day. Lord, confess my sins. Lord, I confess my sins. Forgive me of my sins. That's not a bad thing to pray every day. As long as it's not done with a lack of confidence with what God has done in your life in the past. But, but if I could just put it this way, it's that um, especially when the Holy Spirit highlights a particular sin, then we should come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We should confess our sin and ask him to cleanse us our sin because he's promised to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that question, Jesse. And let me just say again, we've had it twice on this YouTube Live where uh, we blanked out. And we've only blanked out for like a minute. It could have been two minutes, somewhere between a minute and two. If we do it again, please hang on for a couple minutes. Uh, twice, we've come back from the dead, so to speak. If for some reason we get cut off temporarily with this uncertain internet connection, uh, we hope that we'll come back right on again. Uh, continuing on with the questions, Barry asks, uh, what was your initial motivation for taking on the huge task of creating a Bible commentary? What continues to motivate you? Well, Barry, uh, I never intended to write a Bible commentary. I never sat down and said, oh, I wanna write a Bible commentary. I, I never thought myself qualified um, I thought that a Bible commentary would be something that somebody with way more academic credentials than I would be suited to do. But Barry, this is what I found out through some very unusual circumstances. I found out that what I prepared for myself as teaching notes, when I just go and teach, you know, uh, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, wherever else it might be, home Bible studies, believe me, I've, I've taught in all sorts of situations that I found out that uh, what I prepared for myself as teaching notes was helpful for other people as Bible commentary. 
And so really, I was just a pastor doing the job of preaching and teaching. Uh, that's how simple it was for me. So what keeps me going? Well, I'm happy to tell you what keeps me going. One thing that really keeps me going is uh, my love for the Lord and for his word. Look, I experience rich, meaningful fellowship with God in and through his word. I hope you do too. I want that for every believer. That's part of the reason why I do. I, I, I want that, that great fellowship that I experience with God. Uh, Jesus meets me in his word. For me, um, studying deeply and meditating deeply on the word of God, it's not a thing just to amass knowledge or to answer Bible trivia questions. It's, it's so that I can know him. And, and I understand that uh, the word of God is not the only place where God meets his people in fellowship. There's worship, there's prayer, there's community of the sense, there's service. And I've experienced God's presence in all of those spheres as well and praise the Lord for them. Yet there is something wonderful and enduring for me in the fellowship that I have with God in his word. And, and it's not the only place where I fellowship with God, not by any means, but really that's what keeps me going. That's what motivates me. I just love talking to people about God's word and making it plain to people, or at least as plain as I can make it. Okay, next question comes from Bob. Can you explain a deacon should have only one wife? If a deacon remarries, can he no longer serve in ministry or as a minister? And what Bob is referring to there is First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 where it says uh, a bishop, not a deacon. But it says a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, etc. Okay, Bob, uh, this requirement of the husband of one wife, the idea of the original phrase that's used, you know, in, in the original thing that Paul wrote, the, the ancient Greek, the idea behind that phrase is simply this that um, a leader in the church should be a one-woman man. In other words, uh, his romantic and sexual attention should be focused on one woman, his wife. So if he's single, um, he, he shouldn't be putting, he shouldn't be a flirt, he shouldn't be a playboy. Uh, he certainly shouldn't be involved in pornography. That's putting romantic or sexual attention on many women, not just one woman. He's to be a one-woman man. I do not think, number one, that this excludes people who are single from ministry, from service, because a person can be very faithful to the spirit of this command, not a playboy, not a flirt, not you know inappropriately, romantically, or sexually with others. Somebody can fulfill that and, and be single. Last question about the bishop or an overseer in God's church being the husband of one wife. I was saying that the sense of that in the original Greek really is that such a one should be a one woman man. Um, that his attention, his focus should be either on his wife or held for the woman who will be his wife should he be remarried again. It doesn't exclude people who are single. It doesn't exclude people who are widowed and remarried. Um, a person can be a one woman man and uh, be married a second time, certainly through widowhood. Widowhood, I should say. 
So, Bob, I hope that explains that for you. Uh, ju just replace that thing of husband of one wife with one woman man, and I think it gets across the concept very well. Okay, uh, next question comes from Susan. Hi, Pastor David. Uh, is there something missing in me spiritually if I find it difficult to understand the King James Bible or even the New King James Version of the Bible? Are there other Bible versions that are good or are there versions that I should definitely avoid? <clears throat> Susan, I'll give you a very quick, brief answer to the question. No, uh, the, the, the King James Version was written in very archaic English. And so you, you shouldn't feel bad if it's difficult for you to understand. Um, and maybe the New King James isn't so much true. I love the New King James Version. Uh, the, 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 the Bible translation that I use in all my commentary work is the New King James Version. And so I, I love it. Um, I just find it to be a wonderful resource. Uh, and some people like uh, translations such as the ESV, which is very similar to the New King James. To me, it's so similar that I don't see any need to change. Susan, I would recommend a translation to you called the New Living Translation. Uh, I think it's a solid translation. Now, again, I, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I, I, I don't know of any Bible translation that's perfect. Uh, but I think that the New Living Translation is solid, number one, and I know that it's very helpful for a lot of people. So um, I would recommend the New Living Translation, and maybe some for you to watch out for, would be Bible translations such as the Passion Translation. No, my, my friend Mike Winger has done a wonderful examination of the Passion Translation and just how bad it is. No, it's not a good translation. Um, the Message by Eugene Peterson is not in the same category as the Passion Translation at all, but it's more of a commentary than it is a strict translation. So I think as long as you read it with that in mind, okay, it's, it's, it's um, Eugene Peterson kind of waxing poetic with the thoughts of scriptures, more of a commentary than a strict translation. And then of course, there's some put out by some of the, you know, aberrant groups that try to identify themselves as Christians, such as uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the New World Translation, that's rubbish. So... Um, my preference is for the New King James Version. I find it very meaningful, but a great simpler translation for people to use is something called the New Living Translation. I, I think it's pretty solid. Okay, uh, next question comes from Marilyn, who asks, Hello, David. I'm in Shreveport, Louisiana. Hey, Marilyn. Never been to Louisiana. Um, will not everybody be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Who will be invited? Well, okay, in the context that you're quoting it there, an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb could be understood as an invitation to salvation. And as many as are invited to be saved, uh, those, um, those are the ones who will receive the, the salvation. So it's really just that simple. Um, whether or not somebody receives. So I, I don't think what we have is, is, Marilyn, I think what you're thinking of is, are there a group of saved people, God's people, his redeemed, the company of the redeemed, as some older, uh, you know, people would, would term it. Of the company of the redeemed, is it only one segment of that company that gets invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? No, 
all who would be considered in the broadest sense, the bride of Christ, they're the ones who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So um, that's the best way I would explain it. Okay, folks, um, <coughs> excuse me for that. We're gonna cut short our Q&A today. Um, sorry for that, but my voice isn't so great, and probably more importantly, we've had now three times that our internet signal has cut out. And so I look forward to being with you next week uh, for another live Q&A, and we're gonna take special note of the questions that you've submitted that we didn't get to. We're sorry for that. And, and maybe what I'll do is I'll sit down and do just a recorded Q&A with all these great questions that we weren't able to get to today and on some other days. But thank you for your time. Thank you for your presence here. So delighted that you could join us. Uh, God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful week. Uh, I hope to be with you from my normal studio next week. God bless you and uh, may the Lord be with you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.